Welcome to the BRCC podcast, Dean Stott. Appreciate you coming out. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we like to start with, how do you take your coffee? Oh, uh, we have a saying in UK, NATO, which means milk and two sugars. Okay. So that's how I like it. Have it NATO. Yeah. Have it, have it NATO. <laughs> I like that. I might start using that, but I'm not going to quantify or explain it to anybody. Yeah. Yeah, we'll scoot that guy. Yeah. Um, so we met at SHOT Show mm. last year. Yeah, feels like a long time. And yeah. we just hit it off. I think we were hanging out at the Beyond party. Yeah, I got invited to the BRCC party. And uh, yeah, you and I just bumped into each other, got into conversation. And yeah, as with any veteran with a veteran, it's very easy to, to bond and start a conversation flowing. Yeah, absolutely. And then here we are. Yeah, yeah a few months later, we're back, in, yeah, back together. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Scott, if you wouldn't mind, introduce yourself. Tell the people who you are. Yeah, so I'm uh, Dean Stott. I was um, obviously tell by my accent. I'm not from the US. I'm from the UK. Um, I was born in England, a little town called Swindon, actually, but um, never really lived there. My father was on the military. My grandparents in the military, so very much immersed in that environment. So every three years, I would move from town to town, yeah. uh, just as you're about getting settled as a kid, finding friends. You up and leave. So my father's job took us, you know, all around the world, places like Germany and you know, back to the UK. My parents split up as he, uh, uh, when I was quite young, mm-hmm. uh, and I ended up actually living with my father. My father got custody, and so his oh, my last sort of years in school and his last years in the military was in a town called Oldershot, which is the home of the British Army. It's where the parachute regiment were based. So um, it wasn't strange to see people falling from the skies, obviously with parachutes on. Yeah, um, that's normal. That's normal, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and But it was never it was never a career I wanted to pursue myself. I actually always wanted to be a fireman. Mm. Um, but I went to college and went on a surfing holiday with my mates for two weeks, which then soon extended to six months. And uh, my father then found me working in a surf shop. Uh, it was an old, old style Scottish sergeant major so he's very stoic yep. and he sort of told me how I'd ruined my life and what was I going to do so I uh, I told him I joined the military and yeah, at the age of 17 I, I joined the army no real aspirations of any sort of special forces didn't really know much about the military my father was the uh, you guys call it soccer. We call it football. Yeah, he was the, he, he was the uh, the football manager, player, and coach for the okay. army. So we would call him a tracksuit soldier. Yeah, you know, someone who's very good at sport. You know, avoids the front line, but uh, you know can kick a ball. Right. And so yeah, I I didn't really understand much about the military, the infrastructure, and things like that. So I joined at the age of seventeen. And uh, joined the Royal Engineers, as with my father, just to get a trade. Mm-hmm. And before I knew it, and I was progressing quite quickly through the military, um, I joined the commando forces, and it had been reconnaissance commando for eight years. And before you know it, 10 years have passed. Um, I was then the senior dive instructor for the army. But coming from um, an army background, to go special forces, the only option at the time was the special air service, okay. the SAS. But because I spent so long with Free Commander Brigade, and I had a passion for the water, my eyes were sort of turned towards the special boat service. And it was just fortunate timing. They'd opened up their doors now of tri-service. It Mm -hmm. used to just be Royal Marines. So I did. I became one of the first candidates to go special boat service, much to the disgust 
of my mates within the SAS. Um, but for the listeners who don't realise, our selection is actually combined. Mm-hmm. So it's not SBS have their own and SAS have their own. We actually do it together. And then you separate. And, and then you separate after the six months. So, yeah, you can imagine the attention I was, I was pulling. I wasn't the grey man for yeah. that long. But, um, but, yeah, then I think actually now 15% of the SBS come from, from the army. So it was, a, it was very new at the time, but now very much common theme. Gotcha. So I'm curious. You said you traveled around. So in the States, we call it like an army brat. What, yes. do, you, what do you call it? We call it a pads brat. Yeah, brat. yeah. So okay. a military a military home is a pad. Mm-hmm. So you're known as a pads brat. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I like that. So what are you into now? I mean, how did your career progress after you got out and what did you get into? Yeah, I never really had any aspirations of leaving. I know I, I joined at a time in the height of war and terror. It was mm-hmm. the busiest time. In special forces history you know so we were very fortunate to do the first ever operational jumps with the SPS. we were rescuing hostages off the east coast of somalia yeah. you know we're diving on ba- uh, cartel boats you know literally ticking a lot of boxes in a short period of time where a lot of your peers before then would probably be waiting years for that opportunity so for me i didn't really look beyond the military and that's all i wanted to do um but unfortunately i, I had a um a parachuting accident after 16 years i was doing a, a hey ho jump mm-hmm. high altitude, high opening yeah. and um done a number of these jumps you know hundreds of these jumps before and we were just two weeks before deploying back to afghanistan and sergeant major said well you guys can do some fun jumps and i never believe there's such thing as fun jumps or sure. fun dives uh, so it was the third jump of the day i think third or fourth of the day exited the aircraft and as I looked up, I was actually looking towards my feet, which were caught in the lines mm-hmm. above my head. So my first worry was trying to clear my leg in time before the parachute opened. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't, and my leg got pulled over my head and to my right. And uh, straight away, with the pain, I was vomiting. Um, and at 15,000 feet, you're on the limits of oxygen. So I was also drifting in and out of consciousness, but conscious that I had to land this and i only had one good leg to do it on and um, this is this is a free fall rig just so, for the listeners who don't mm. know free fall rig your leg is still in the lines so no this is you a static it. line rig this is a, oh. so it's not a free fall so you exit the aircraft at fifteen thousand feet on a static line okay and what it, the the purpose of it is it opens straight away so it gives you maximum travel time through the air so you can travel up to 30 minutes or 50 kilometers to the target area it's a rectangular canopy it's a rectangular steerable canopy. steerable canopy okay, yeah gotcha. and so the um the line got caught above, above me so my worry was i need to clear it before the actual parachute opens because ah. there's going to be an extra pull yep. and i didn't clear it and it ripped my head over uh, my leg over my head and to the right and yep. uh i landed it one-legged it was a great landing probably one of my best landings i have so many questions on this <laughs> yeah Here, lean up on yeah. that. yeah but these, the um these are new yeah that's good but the um but actually, the damage sustained. I tore my ACL, my MCL, my lateral meniscus with my knee. How did you? Could you get into your brakes? Could you? Uh, yeah, flare? I, everything from everything from my my torso up, I, yep. I could use. It was just literally from my lower my lower limbs down, gotcha. and and I would and you know as you know when you have got your rigs on, it's it's very tight. Yeah. You know, it's com- uncomfortable in most most days, but on this day it was even more uncomfortable. Oh, so I saw where the other parachutes were approaching the uh, the NATO T, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, that's my you know gauge my best approach, yeah, and I got a good approach. It was one legged, and um, my mate was that's a great landing. I said yeah. the exit wasn't, <laughs> and so we called the medic over. Yeah, I tore my ACL, MCL, lateral meniscus, my hamstring, my calf, and my quadricep. So all those supporting muscles which you would need, you know, they'd gone as well. So 
they my 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 unit went off to Afghan and then yeah I I, I started uh, my uh, whole rehab but uh, unfortunately it was too much damage and yeah I had to le- had to leave the military so it wasn't something I I'd planned for for mm-hmm. me I was a career soldier I was, right. I w- I'd still be in now well, until the age of fifty five yeah yeah is that how it works how does that work in it the depends UK? you know you can sign up through it's up to you it used to be year you know three six nine and then it was twelve and twenty two mm-hmm. um, I think now. You can do 22, 24 years. It depends where you've got to in your career. You know, a lot of them will go late entry, as we say, commissioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can carry on till you're 55, if need be. Can we talk briefly about the operational jump? Because that's yeah. it's actually pretty rare. I mean, yeah. people generally know that the military has, you know, a, a free fall insertion yeah. capability. But it's kind of rare to meet anybody that is that have executed. Yeah, yeah. Actually done it. So yeah, no, we did we did a, a few. So prior to um, this tour to Afghanistan, we were doing hey ho um, training, and so for us it was basically it's an insertion method that's an option if if we need it. Right. So as you know, when you go to Afghanistan, each time you go on a tour to Afghanistan, you know the 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 enemy. Becoming more smart, uh, oh, they're yeah. understanding your TTP. So you always almost need to be one stage ahead. So the Taliban obviously would nickname us Green Eyes because the only people who operate at night are special forces, mm-hmm. and because of the MBGs, we will nickname Green Eyes. Yeah. So any sort of helo movement at night, they would just assume it's, it's SF, and so they would just we call them squirters. Yep. They would just squirt from the compound uh, before we'd even got there. So we would. We would jump in, team of 16. We would, um, you know, would land the parachutes away from the target area and sort of mark them. And then we'd walk in to the, into, the com- into where we're the target area. And then we would secure the area and then we would call in the helos. And as we were calling the helos, you had the squirters, we were already in position. Yeah. And then the helos would then land. The other teams would come on, on the ground and then they would pick up the parachutes and then come back and get us. What, what was the the success rate of the jump? Were you were people getting injured? Because that's an unsurveyed DZ, like yeah. or LZ DZ. Yeah. So that's been the problem statistically. You know, PJ missions, buddies, mm. stories. It's always like, yep, we, you know, one guy broke X. Yeah. You know. Yeah. How'd you guys fare? Yeah, I think I think the same. You know, you have to take that risk. You know, mm-hmm. with with our sort with the tier one special forces, we wouldn't go out the door all the time. We'd only go out the door for HVT, so it had to be mission critical yeah. and that sort of over you know that that importance overweighs injuries or Absolutely. potential death so that we knew there was going to be potential injuries and, and there were there were we, you know as with anything when it's new you, you, you're uh, you're not you're not making it up as you go along you're always learning from your mistakes you know we, we have a thing called the hot debrief yeah uh, you know what worked what didn't work and if we were going to do that again, what would we do differently? We did that many times on, on the jumps. But I remember one, I think it was the first one, actually, the PGI, our parachute jump instructor, hadn't offset the outer meters oh, to the yeah. target area. So I remember us being about 2,500, 3,000 feet at night, thinking, perfect. Next thing, we're all spanking into the side of the hill. So there's always those, there was those sort of mistakes as well. And as you know, with any sort of parachuting, the unstable ground, you're going to pick up, you're going to pick up some injuries. But... That that risk was outweighed by the mission itself, and so we had to execute it. Yeah, that's interesting though. But for the listeners, um, so if you take off from one location and you're jumping at let's say a different altitude, you yeah. have to adjust that on your altimeter so that's that it, it can yeah. correctly gauge 
you know where you're where you're gonna land. So exactly, I can imagine yeah. nighttime, you're like, man, I should be good. Dunk, and yeah, that was land in real quick. <laughs> Fingers still got two and a half thousand feet, enjoying <laughs> the scenery. And next thing is just sliding down the side of a, a side of a hill. Yeah. But then we did, when we did other ones in you know uh, hostage rescues off Somalia, and that was again that was a different thing completely because we're we're now landing into the sea. Yeah. Um, and our sort of main main threat from there was the sharks. You know, that was all oh, our sh- concern was. It was super like super scary. Get me out of this water quickly. Yeah. Are so. you pushing? boats were you chasing bundles or um we have the we have the capability to be able to to chase bundles mm-hmm. uh for one of those because of the time critical things there was boats already out there so gotcha. they, they met us there but yeah we have that capability to chase them if need be so yeah. because it was a, a quick quick uh wind up and we need to be there quick we uh sort of utilize them it was interesting because the the boat handlers that we have understand you know, the wet jumps as we say it, right. you know so you want to get as close to that boat as possible I remember when I exited as um, number one on stick two, so everyone follows you as the stick leader. Right. I'm trying to get myself as close to this boat as possible, but the, the coxswain has never picked up parachutes, so I'm trying to go to him, <laughs> he's trying and to he's away. trying to go somewhere else. So it's, honestly, it was, just, yeah, it was a comedy sketch. <laughs> Chasing him around. Yeah. No, that's awesome. I mean, two have done it multiple times. That's yeah, an yeah, that was, yeah, so that's the thing. It's like once we've done it once and it was successful, then you know we, we did it a number of occasions. And then, it, again, it starts to dry up. People start, they understand your TTPs, and we need to then think what what can we do now to be sort of ahead of that curve so i'm curious uh we call it double bag static line okay yeah right that's and uh i think i did my my transition jumps because you had to learn how to run the system and a yeah. di- little bit different exit and whatnot i want to say we started that in like 2011 when did you have the capability so we were doing that that tour was 2008 that was okay. 2008 we were doing that yeah, yeah. but i think they're like the the sas had done jumps before us you know mm-hmm. there was more the free fall uh, their air troops they'd done some in, into afghan for us it was a large number mm-hmm. yeah and, uh, and i gotta show you this video so yeah. we're in africa yeah and we're doing the you know just the jump progression and i think we were slick it might have been one of the first jumps wow. so they're running a gopro and we're getting coached right yeah. like hey your exit was this abc you know just an aar like you yeah, said yeah, hot yeah. wash or whatever yeah and i would joke i'm like we're gonna play a game called pick the officer <laughs> so you see number one man yeah. number two man and you have to exit kind of in this like seated position just yeah. to stay stable pulls off your back it's it was actually amazing i'm like this oh. is like a gentle hug it opens yeah. so nicely because it's got what's called a retarded slider you know so yeah, it's yeah. fighting i know yeah that's not a derogatory term for <laughs> it's an actual piece of equipment number one man number two man Number three man just straight up rolls up windows and kicks his legs like a cat. Oh, no. <laughs> it's the officer. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then lands off DZ someplace. Oh, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So at 16 years, unfortunately, yeah. you have an injury that ends your career. Yeah. What year is that? So that's 2011. Okay. Yeah, yeah. When I left, was, I, uh, the injury was uh, 2010. And then by the time I – there was a spiral of errors – Losing medical documents and things that so took a lot longer than it should have done for me to get my uh, my my knee operated on. So you're so. saying you have the same problems that we have? Yeah, so losing records. The same problems. Yeah, just <laughs> <laughs> prove it. Where's the record? I don't know. Yeah. It was in there. No, it's gone. Yeah, exactly. Well, actually, one of the good things, my my doctor um, in the SBS, he was great. He was like, take a photocopy of these because somehow they will disappear. Oh yeah. And so he was really good in, in and that's what I did. I I had that I made my own case and I appealed and you know I won my won my case against the military for my medical pension. Nice. But as you said, you know, I didn't look beyond that and without sounding like Liam Neeson, people with our skill sets and natural progression is the 
security industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but so to add to the pressure, my wife was eight months pregnant, and oh, yeah. I, I was like, "Is there any work out there? How am I going to support my family?" Going through what you and I probably know and others know as an identity crisis. True. You know, I mean, you know, knowing what I was doing day in day out for the next two years, working with like-minded individuals with the same passion and drive and goals to where do I now fit in society? We, we talk about it often. Yeah. And, and I just referenced it recently, but even now that the, you know, there's no real theater, no. a large theater that we're working in, mm. I think that you know, some people's headspace is going to get a little fucked up, to be honest with you, because yeah. they lack that purpose. Yeah, you I think they I mean? do. I think also it's not just the military, it's sports people. It's people who, who work in any sort of team. Mm-hmm. And there's a great book called The Tribe. You know, you've, we like to be part of a tribe. Yes. And then when you come out of that tribe and you can't get back in, it's like, what tribe do I now go to? And it's right. that, that's the identity crisis until you find another goal, another purpose yep. or, or something else. So that's what I was going through. And um, you know, thankfully for me, my wife, very entrepreneurial, you know, took, you know, the military is very good at, you know, they clove you, they feed you, they pay. It's like your mother and your father. Mm-hmm. Don't they? You know, There's you definitely don't... a learning curve when you're like, oh my gosh, I have to like get insurance, like, you know, yeah. different weird things. Yeah. I did, yeah what, we've got to pay for heating? What? Yeah. <laughs> Tax for that. It's like, so my wife sort of took those responsibilities away from me, which, which was great, you know, so that really helped my, my transition. But May 2011, when I got out, within 48 hours, I was helping set up the British Embassy in Benghazi during the Arab Spring. Mm-hmm. So Gaddafi was now in Tripoli. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone was forming up in Benghazi, and there was a whole influx of uh, security companies, NGOs, oil and gas, because you know it was a matter of weeks before Gaddafi had f- would fall. Right. But I soon identified that the Libyans didn't want it being your next Afghanistan or Iraq. They didn't want all these security companies coming in with weapons. You know, they wanted to take control. But also that these, I always call them the big five. I'll never name and shame. These big security companies were charging six, seven-figure sums for these crisis management evacuation plans, which weren't actually in Not place yeah. and as we've seen more recently last year in Afghanistan it hasn't changed mm-hmm. over the years so I went back home my wife gave birth to our daughter Molly and um, I said look I was always trying to find a niche within the industry um, a lot of my friends would were cleaning up on the uh, maritime stuff that was at its height right. but I didn't want to sort of tread on their toes you know or compete with them so I wanted to find my own sort of uh, niche so I said to my wife you know do you mind if I take the minimum savings that we had out of the bank because there was a huge proliferation of weapons at this time in Libya and that wasn't going to be there forever. Right. So I went back in and I bought 30 weapons on the black market and I buried them between Tunis and Egypt. <laughs> just buried them with comms kit, with money and, and pelly cases um, and just spent a month in the desert just d- designing a simple um, cash cash mm-hmm. program yep. and just wrote an evacuation plan and sold it. We lived in Aberdeen, which is the, the Houston of Europe, it's the oil and gas capital of Europe. So I had that access to the oil and gas companies, and I just sold my uh, my concept to them. Hopefully, never right. needing to use it, and um, sort of sat on that in the industry. You know, when you tell people in the security industry and the way you look, they think they think you're a doorman from Club Tropicana or something. <laughs> and it's like, you know, because we have so many skill sets which we take for granted from the military. You know, not just the skill sets we get, but being able to coach, mentor, um, being able to talk in front of high-profile individuals, um, you know, they're the sort of skill sets we underestimate that we have when, when we leave. And so for me, I was doing a lot of jobs, and each phone call was different. You know, one could you take the UAE royal family's super yacht from Barcelona to Maldives, and the that, next that one... That was probably pretty fun, though, because it's creative. Yeah, it's it, diverse. Yeah, it's creative, you know, and a lot of it's problem-solving. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's, you know, for us, it's quite simple, but for others, it might be quite a difficult task. You know, next one, training the Kurdish Special Forces, you know, going to the Olympics, going to the World Cup. So oh, yeah. in a short period of time, I was learning a lot 
about this new industry that I was now uh, operating in. But the crisis management was where I was, where my sort of main focus was. And I just finished the London Olympics in 2012, and uh, I was in Benghazi the evening the American ambassador got killed. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So September 11th, 2012, I get a phone call. I didn't realize you were on the ground. Yeah, yeah. We, I, was, I was just on the ground in, in, in Benghazi, mm -hmm. and um, it's all going off in the city. Uh, I then get a phone call as, a, as a, an oil company. Can you? There's some engineers. Can you get them from there and get them back to Tripoli? So I took them back through safe houses that I had in the desert. You know, the obviously, when I do things is I don't do the obvious. I sort of look at... Um, different, you heard the phrase different ways of skinning a cat oh yeah yeah different ways of skinning a cat mm -hmm. you know because it was a coastal road from Benghazi to Tripoli and we could have easily taken that and probably done it in a few hours but I wasn't aware how the situation was going to unfold in Benghazi mm -hmm. and I needed a soak period and also I couldn't use my drivers from Benghazi because they're from different tribes right. that itself would probably compromise us so we just moved to a safe house in Zela sat there for a, a soak period of 24 hours watched it all unfold and then just, just got them safely back to Tripoli with drivers that I'd brought in from, from Tripoli. Yeah, a bit of a hand uh, yeah, yeah, that was it. And but, you know, I didn't need the weapons. The weapons were close by if we need them, but I, I didn't need that. And then because of the success of that, I was at the Brazil World Cup in 2014 mm -hmm. and joined it. One of the clients which was Visa, the credit card, and nice. fully enjoying the, these games in Brazil, you know, the, the, the home of football. Well, I don't know, it's probably England, actually. And the, uh, I, I get a phone call from the Canadian embassy saying, we're, it's now the Tripoli War, which is a civil war between the militias and the government. And they said, look, your name keeps coming up. Mm -hmm. You know, this is the situation. We're here, there's 18 military, four diplomats. The other embassies have gone. Um, can you come in and assist? So I went back in, you know, flew back into into Libya. And, and what it was, was they had a, had the military security team with them, but they'd never, during, every four months they would rotate and they would mm. fly out of the airport. But their sort of remit, they never really, Palm City was where their accommodation was and Tripoli Towers is where the office. And, and they never, they used to always do that route. They never really looked outside the Tripoli uh, walls. But the international airport had now burnt down um, and they were, they were stuck. And mm. so I went and met the team, met the, uh, the team commander, uh, a guy called Chad, really nice guy. And I said, well, look, I've got people out. It's not a problem. The, their concern was the British embassy the week before got shot at every right. checkpoint on the way to, to Tripoli. So this was causing them concern. They didn't know what this road was. And so I went out and spoke to the, not the guys with the guns, just spoke to the tribal elders. And, and it was actually just about communication, showing them respect, mm -hmm. let them know who we were, that we were no threat and, you know, and what our intent was. And um, yeah, we, we drove out the next day and got, got them safely from Tunis, us uh, from Tripoli to, to Tunis. Awesome. You know, I was in the lead vehicle with uh, my fixer and I had comms with the team commander and literally I had waypoints along the way. And yes, there was times I had to palm people's hands with cash. Sure. But as soon as I got through, just sort of just waved them through and got them to, uh, got them out. It sounds sexy in Hollywood, but actually I've never had to use any of my weapons. Interesting. Um, yeah, because- you ready for it. I love that idea of like, yeah, the caches along the way. We've got to have cash. It's more that, you know, as you know, Hollywood doesn't help matters with the special forces. <laughs> you know what I mean? Correct. You know, it's all the biceps, the bullets and the bombs, and which is 25% of what we do, mm -hmm. the offensive action, which is when we need to do it, 
we can do it and we do it well and that's where the caches would would have come in handy but actually 50 percent of what we do is that support and influence that hearts and minds you know really that ground truth yeah, you know you as you know when you're up yeah you know yeah. it doesn't matter what the media are telling you what's actually happening on the ground and so often it's so skewed by the media yeah you know i, I referred to in the past like you can point the camera this way and show yeah. one narrative and just as easily point it the other direction exactly and it's a totally different narrative yeah yeah I, I know she said to my wife you know when we used to, my page used to go off it wasn't hard to really uh, decipher where i was potentially going on the news but mm -hmm. i'd say just don't don't look at the news because oh, you, know, you know you know because you know they'll, they'll, they'll obviously um they'll they'll make it out to be something it, it isn't um so so that was it that was that was really the success of that you know yes i had the weapons there but i didn't need need to use them and and still now um that, that's what i do i'll do a lot of crisis management evacuation plans as we saw with afghanistan that was a another time to to get involved that was a, a very much a different scenario than than likes of libya and things like that that was more of a paper exercise yeah no, what, who, what did you find yourself doing during that time? so we we got our clients luckily we had ground connectivity we had a we had a medical facility there for 10 years so mm -hmm. we still had the, the the teams on the ground not so much and when I, i'll sort of go back slightly when i sort of talk about teams each task i do i hand pick the team you know for the canadian embassy you know on paper, you think it's probably about six to eight guys that look like you and me. Mm -hmm. Actually, all I needed for that was a 50-year-old internet shop owner from Worcester back in the UK because he was from those tribes that we were passing through uh, and yeah. two fish wagons. I didn't need... A What's big, a fish wagon? Just, 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 there was... People carrier? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just a fish wagon. So they used to, um, used to take fish from the ports in Tripoli to Tunis every day. Uh. So what it was was... Because they do that route all the time, the borders know the drivers and they're not going to suspect them. Yeah, and so, yeah. so with the Canadian Embassy, they had their, their vehicles, but they, they had so much sensitive equipment as well, which they couldn't take with them. So I said, we'll put them in the fish wagons. And you yeah. can see their faces like, That's what? That's brilliant. I yeah. said, no, no, because they will not get stopped. Any other sort of vehicle they're not used to seeing Will get stopped and so that's all i needed for that well i think the value that you're bringing to all these different scenarios like you said 25 percent is you know the gunslinging yeah only when you need to yeah but if you're doing your job right with your tradecraft and your planning and everything else that's then it. you shouldn't have to pick up the gun that's it yeah it's about being proactive rather than reactive yeah. and and that's what we did with, with afghan we are you know 90 of our clients we got out in the earlier stages because we you know obviously the afghan situation that happens not to a grander scale like that but that happens quite a lot in the industry right. where um people are always being reactive rather than proactive mm -hmm. and they're not they're not basically adhering to the sort of trigger points the telltale signs because we knew that was going to happen but why wait until the last minute so when I do my uh, planning you know I have these telltale signs trigger points and majority of the time most of the people will be out before that scenario happened. The only discrepancy for that is a natural disaster. That's the only time it'll ever go from green to red uh, overnight. And yeah, so you can't yeah, control that timeline. That's it, yeah, can't yeah. control that time. So we had 90% of our, our clients out. We, there was 10% critical who had to stay. Mm -hmm. um, and then the next thing, our phone's just going off. You know, can you get such and such? Can you get such and such out? So it was great to see um, humanity you know there's a lot of people and i think i had 47 different whatsapp groups from the uk boxing team to the housewives of like orange county or whatever who just wanted to do good but uh and raising money but really didn't understand the intricacies behind 
uh, you know, the evacuations. Because, you know, it was great to see all these non-profits and stuff and getting people out. But for us, we, because we do this all the time, we had to make sure that everyone we were getting out had the correct paperwork, you know, because, you know, people didn't realize there were people getting shipped out with no passports, no paperwork. It's I, actually, I think the first couple of days, like people yeah. would jump on a plane and get out. But then after that, what, what did they call it? Um, CIV? CIV. Isn't that what yeah. they need? It was some specific Yeah, document. there was different one. It depends where they were going to. You know, if right. they were coming to America, yeah. But there was, there was, and obviously with a lot of the offices that were shut, there was, there was holding uh, stations in like, um, in the Middle East, mm -hmm. Lithuania, where you could get to, to these camps and the paperwork would, would follow. Um, but for me, it was more, it was the human trafficking angle. There was people getting shipped out and sent to places and there's no paperwork to follow them. And so, yeah, so although people would, were doing good, they were also doing a lot, a lot of damage as in, well. Inadvertently. Inadvertently, yeah. That it was, was it. interesting just, you know, in the circles that we collectively run in from our backgrounds. Um, I ended up in D.C. Yeah. and just seeing everybody collapse on this, this task. Mm. I remember I, I walked into the Willard because yeah. I had point of contact, says, hey, you can do some stuff here. Yeah. We could use you. I walk in, I talk to the Secret Service guys, and they're they're all gunned up. Like, that yeah, place yeah. was locked down pretty hard. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I had dressed and packed in order to just go there mm. and, like, leave whatever I had. So I'm down to, like, Sophie shorts and flip-flops because yeah, yeah. <laughs> all my laundry's dirty and it's yeah, sitting yeah. at a buddy's house. And uh, I walk in and I hand the guy my pocket knife. Right. And I go through the magnometer thing, mm. my fanny pack. I'm just, like, yeah, bopping yeah. around. I cruise back. And uh, I used the restroom, and then the Secret Service guy walks up to me. There was a man in the gate, because I said, I want to come back and get this. Like, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. going to be on shift or whatever. Yeah. I go back to use the restroom. He walks in the bathroom, and he's like, here you go. And I go, aren't they going to be pissed about that? He goes, I think you'll do more damage if you don't have this. I was oh, like, okay, yeah. right, thanks, buddy. Yeah, yeah. I'm walking up the ramp, and this guy, retired General Linder, he was my right. point of contact right. to get on birds and put my team on. Yeah, it. yeah, cool. And it fell through because of the money. I'm oh, looking really? at a G5 on the tarmac. Yeah. And there's no money. It got spent literally yeah. between Dallas, Fort Worth, and Dallas. Oh, you're joking. So I'm like, fuck. It was, yeah. It's a much longer story. But I shake his hand. He's like, oh, man, I'm really sorry. A, B, and C happened. Yeah. And sure enough, if somebody I didn't work for in Kurdistan is like, yeah. oh, hey, what's up, man? Come in here. And there's a talk set up with a whole bunch of people. Oh, yeah. You know, off the clock, doing using their own time. Yeah. It was open all night long. Yeah. Constantly. And th those WhatsApp chats. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a job to yeah. keep track of all that. Oh, it was, yeah, it was no, it, it, it was. And, and also just to, it's difficult to say no to certain people as well. You know, Absolutely. I never like to say no, but we had to prioritize who was generally at threat and who was maybe just taking advantage of that, of the world's press being there. Right. Um, but for me, it's like, and, I, and I, there was an incident in spring 20, 2020 where 60 to 70 expats got killed in Mozambique. Mm. Similar, it never made the news. Yeah, nobody um, about it. never made the news, but... What I'm seeing common theme and where we sort of help out is that the insurance companies, a lot of these big corporates have insurance, mm -hmm. but they're called force majeure, which just leaves them stranded. Right. But insurance, the insurance companies can get you an aircraft and they can land it in, in Kabul, but they don't factor how you're going to get from A to B. Correct. So that's where we sort of come in and we call it the first mile. We'll come in because that's the easy part, getting mm -hmm. on the plane. We'll stress test the first mile. How are you going to get from a to B, um, we, we help companies who have security already and we could come in and pen test it and really stress test it. And also, you know, what is your secondary and your tertiary plan? 
Um, sometimes they don't yeah, have it. Sometimes they just look at Google Earth. Yeah. We, we had one with a, a um, an extracted material company in, in Latin America and went down there and I said, well, what, what's your evacuation plan? Is oh, it's this road here. Okay, we'll go out there tomorrow. Knowing it was raining hard that evening, like it was impassable. Yeah, and it's like, well, what is your next plan? Right. So, so yeah, it, we and, and no, we we've learned from years of experiences ourselves in how to sort of assist those because any sort of corporation, you know, um, it's the welfare of their staff, and it's mm-hmm. not just in war zones; it's places that are just difficult to get to. So as we're seeing now, we've got Ukraine, you've got Taiwan. You know, Taiwan's going to be interesting because that's an island. Right. That's going to be a whole new beast completely. So so there, that's where my sort of my skill sets lie now in, in that crisis management evacuation plan um, sort of situation. So just proactively doing good shit. Just, just proactively, yeah. And I, I sort of say to them, if you're, if you're proactive now, it's actually 10% of the cost Mm-hmm. And when it needs to be reactive, you know? well, absolutely. You know, I got, I got kind of, I don't even know the guy's name. I should figure it out. But mm. um, a PJ, a PJ guy during yeah. HKIA, like yeah. saw the writing on the wall before a lot of us did, yeah. and just went. Yeah. And he's around there doing work. Yeah. I mean, on his own accord. I, I'd love to track that guy down. So yeah. if you're listening, let me know. Yeah. But I think through the reps that you've accomplished, you're probably able to lean forward a little bit more and go like, "This is going to be a problem, and this is how it could be solved," or at least start looking at it. At least, at least yeah, that's it. it. At least start looking at it. And also, you know, we we come in. We can either come in and do the plan and you know write all the security proposal for you, or just assist those that are in it. Mm-hmm. You know, because a lot of them, are, especially in the corporate world, you know, it's, it's different from the military. And in the military, you're all there to help each other. In the corporate yeah. world, people are stepping over each other. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah, they don't like it when they're like, we come in as a security organizer. I'm not here for your job. You know, I'm here just to help help you guys. So that's the problems I'm sort of seeing at the moment. Is some people are like, we don't need you. And then all of a sudden, you get the phone call at the wrong time. So, right. yeah. That's, a, that's an interesting thing. So now mm. that I'm... I'm dealing a little bit more with some corporate entities. Yeah. I never thought about that because we have chain of command in the military. Yeah. So you know, like if you're contributing, you're not trying to take a squad leader or a platoon leader's job. You're no. just doing work. Yeah. But in the corporate world, it's very much a thing. People get challenged. Yeah. Like why? What are you? Why are you in my Cheerios? Like I'm up for promotion. You're gonna fuck it up. Yeah, so yeah. That's and interesting. Yeah, so yeah, we, yeah, we we see that a lot, and it's like, well, we don't. We're not here to take your job we're just here to to help you or right. just test what you've got and so yeah we, i find that i find that quite difficult but um but yeah there's there's i enjoy the security stuff for me it's um you know i'm enjoying this sort of world now in the media which we'll touch on in a minute but mm-hmm. for me that, there's two dean stocks there's the dean stock that you see you google you know the books the tv and stuff yeah. and the bike rides or whatever but for me my bread and butter still is is the security world you know i love to help people i love to problem solve for me i think my days have gone of smuggling people across borders (laughs) now a bit more of a public figure but as you know we've got friends leaving the military all the time who can do this and and happily stay in in the shadows so for me it's like you know giving them the work and you know me with my profile but pushing it down downhill to them bit of a celebrity now no, yeah. well, I don't know. <laughs> well, when you put your face on camera, sometimes it limits other options it does. a little bit. You know, it's not it does, like yeah. They it can does. look you up. And then, I mean, it's scary. They could find your family. That's why I always worry about facial recognition. Once yeah. your face is out there, it's like, ooh, it's a whole other feeling. Yeah, you know, it is. A little more careful. Yeah, we have a disclose yourself for the Special Forces in the UK, and, and there's, there's guidelines. And, and one of the reasons they sort of say, well, once you, we call it, put your head above the parapet, mm-hmm. you know, 
you've exposed yourself we can't protect you or your family anymore so right. it's that it's that sort of risk that you have to take but i never i never planned on you know being a public figure in the th in the in the public eye you know it sort of happened by accident when i evacuated the canadian embassy mm -hmm. my wife was like you know i'd come home and she told me that i'd only been home 21 days in a 365 day calendar mm. and so sort of pin dropped that i was trying to match the adrenaline rush that I had when I was in the Special Forces without coming to terms with the fact that I'd left. Right. And this was five years now it's after leaving. It's a struggle. You know, yeah. I was I was looking for that adrenaline rush. I was looking for that buzz. And for me, it was smuggling people across borders. It was burying weapons. Mm -hmm. But I had a young family. And, and that whole yin and yang balance of work and, and family, it wasn't. It was very one-sided. I, I, I remember talking to myself through this narrative, even during like age, different things that came up because I yeah. constantly wanted to get involved again. Yeah. And people would be like, well, well you've got kids. Like, isn't it enough? Haven't mm -hmm. you done enough? And it's that feeling of, it's like FOMO, you know, fear yeah. of missing out yeah. and contributing and everything else. And I remember saying some really unhealthy thoughts to myself of like, well, if I die doing good things, then my kids will understand that I'm a hero. Yeah. And it took me a second to change that paradigm of like, well, maybe you need to change your, your habits and your life in yeah, order yeah. to be around and not just be the story. But, you know, I grew up watching Rambo and John Claude and, all, you know, yeah. the hero dies or the heroes yeah. you know, recognized or whatever. But. Yeah, I think probably that's why I wanted to be a fireman. It's always that hero syndrome. My wife says that you've got the hero syndrome. You mm -hmm. like to help people, you know, whether whether it's people you, you physically see or, or whether it's through charity. You always like to, to give back. But, but, yeah, I came back from that trip and my wife sort of said you know chapter 16 is called dead or divorce that was the conversation we were having at this time she's like if you continue at this pace you will either be dead or you would be divorced but mm -hmm. i totally disconnected from society me evacuating an embassy was just the normal and it actually isn't quite normal, no, it's not normal. and so she said look you know take a sabbatical my wife is a property developer she said okay. come work with me and i was like perfect my this is five years after leaving the military. So this leg now was two kilos lighter than this leg because of the muscle wastage. Okay. So I bought a, a road bike off Amazon, you know, and just cycled to and from the office. But straight away being physically active again, I felt there was almost like a weight off my shoulders, you know, because uh, I neglected that whole physical and mental well-being because I was just so fixated on work. But you can imagine my backstory. I'm sat in these meetings with my wife. Yeah, I wasn't impressed at all. Right. <laughs> and she's looking over and she's like, right, you need to do something. So it's about a month before my 40th birthday. And I remember reading a, a young, a, as a young child, a Guinness Book of Records, it's called. Yeah. I don't know who you saw it. You saw, saw course, these amazing yeah. achievements, whether it's endurance or whether someone could eat 20 Ferrero Rochers in a minute. You know what I mean? It was, it was amazing. And so is that, is that one? Is that I, got, one? I should have actually gone for that one. It'd been easier. But, so <laughs> I said, well, I, I, yeah, I said, I fancy doing the world record. And also during this period of leaving the military, I, me, me and my wife do a lot in the veteran community with charities. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm ambassador for Royal British Legion, the SBS Association. So always wanted to give back where we could to the to the veteran community so i said well i fancy doing a world record i was thinking you know i lived in scotland at the time i was maybe you know south north scotland my wife had found the world's longest road which runs in southern argentina mm -hmm. to northern alaska it's fourteen thousand miles or wow. twenty-two thousand kilometers finishes in prudhoe bay and starts in ushuaia 
So I, I sort of joked that she wanted me out of the house. You yeah. know what I mean? I was like, really? It's something that big. But That's I thought... Thing. It's honeymoon phase. Whether you <laughs> yeah. see you being gone all the time and then you're home all the time. Like, yeah. Shouldn't you get a hobby? Like, yeah, go I know. Do something. So I'd only cycled 20 miles maximum at this point. No so shit. Yeah, so I was like, well, I'll apply for the world record. So I applied for the world record. And six weeks later, Guinness came back and said, yeah, you've been successful on his application. No so I was shit. Like, oh, shit. I better start training. This is now real. But for yeah. me, it has to be, you know, once, once you set a, a start point, you know, that's it then. You've got something to go for. I wasn't a cyclist, but I knew from my time in the military, I knew I had the endurance. I knew I had the right mindset. You know, with a good plan, this should be, should be achievable. So I... The world record was, uh, when I applied for it, it was 126 days. Six weeks later, it's now 117 days, this target. Did a lot in the philanthropy area. I was very fortunate to meet, as you see in the back of the book, uh, Prince Harry. So mm -hmm. him and I have been friends for 15 years. Nice. We're on a JTAC course together. Oh, no shit. Back in 2007, before oh, his first crazy. tour. Yeah, yeah. So him and I were the JTAC partners on the course. Yeah. And done a lot in the charity sector with each other, especially in the special forces area and, and stuff for him. You know, I had an intelligence fusion cell based in Mozambique and Tanzania to identify the smuggling routes for the ivory. Very you know, cool. and then yeah. just to just send that information to him. So I rang him up and said, look, I'm going to cycle the world's longest road. What charity should we do it for? So he was about to launch a mental health campaign with his brother and Kate. Mm -hmm. And it was all, and I'd seen firsthand mental health within the military, but I wasn't aware how big an issue it was throughout this the whole of society. It's a huge It's yeah. a huge thing. You know, postnatal depression, young children, teenagers on Instagram, all these sort of things, bullying and I saw that. Perfect. So I set a target of a million pounds and was going to cycle a year late and just trained, just trained for this thing. Sort of didn't know much about cycling, just got a military set of orders, put it on the plan and just crossed out ammunition. Um, <laughs> so I looked at... It's a good starting point. Yes, it's a good starting point. I sort of looked at um, all the potential scenarios that we could come across. Because I had a support team and a documentary team as well with mm. me who are a bit more risk averse. So, you know, what's the best time of the year for me to be going? You know, are we going through any of the countries in the middle of elections, any political or civil unrest? Yeah, you know, all these... Yeah, there's more to it than grabbing a banana and a water bottle and just cycling <laughs> north. <laughs> and so, so the plan was really evolving in to some you know, quite a huge operation and then training wise I just you know I started learning more about cycling I was buying these magazines and books but I wasn't getting that critical information I needed for the project so the hot debrief as we touched on or the hot wash that you call and mm -hmm. I thought well the best people to speak to are those that have done it before you absolutely so I, I reached out to them and, and they're very forthcoming in, in opening up the information which was great and asked them the three questions they all started in Alaska and finished in Argentina but all their issues were in South and Central America <laughs> so I thought well being a minute get, yeah, yeah. get that out of the way early yeah. why would you not just get all those issues out of the way you know whether it's bureaucracy or languages or spare set of bikes get out of the way and then when I'm in North America you know, home home run yeah. all the way to Alaska. So one of the things I was quite proud of, I did. I turned it on its head and, and uh, started from Argentina. You know, we um, you know we trained for a year. There, there was certain areas I was going to go to. You know, very fortunate in the military to operate in the desert, the jungle, and the Arctic. But I've never done it on a bike. You know, it's I mean, I was going a from another set of issues too. Oh yeah, I was going from plus forty-seven degrees centigrade in the Atacama Desert to minus 20 in, in Alaska. So, you know, I'd operate, but not done it on the bike. So mm -hmm. I tried to replicate those sort of situations. So I flew out to Dubai, did some heat training, was training at altitude in the altitude center. So for me, I, you know, I, was, I, I could satisfy myself that when it came to the day of the, the race, right. 
that you were in a, in a good position. So I imagine there's, there's got to be a lot of equipment concerns as well, just the heat on the road and the yeah. tires and how they behave. And Well, Guinness, there was no difference between supported and unsupported. Okay. And so for me, it was like, well, I'm not a cyclist. And the issues that the other people had had, which was spares for the bikes and, you know, nutrition and things like that, I was like, well, take a support team, have a support team, which obviously with that comes bigger costs. Of course. But, um, yeah, I, I, that's, you know, that's what I did. I had that. So we had all those spares and things like that. But I think the wheel record at that time, 117 days, I was aiming for 110. It wasn't because I wanted to smash it by a week. Mm-hmm. As you know, in the military, you have to, we call it fudge. Yeah, you have factor. to have fudge in the fudge mm-hmm. in the plan, fudge factors. There was things that are out of my control, natural disasters, coups, sort of third party influence. So my target was 110 days. Um, it, it didn't come on a challenge like that. You're going to get issues. You know Absolutely. what I mean? You know, I, I crashed my bike in Chile. I got knocked off my bike in Colombia. I got food poisoning oh. in Peru. You know, the, it, it came with its issues. But from from a cycling perspective, south to north was a good decision. I had a tailwind all the way through Peru. So I took 10 days off the South America world record. Oh, so wow. I was like, perfect. Yeah, you know what I mean? Away. So I was well ahead of where, where we should be. Now, what type of people had set this record? I'm assuming they were cyclists. They were cyclists. All of them and, were cyclists, yeah. My, my, you're like, fuck it. I'm just going to jump on this bike. Yeah. Well, my, crush it. my sponsorship marketing team did the SWOT analysis, mm-hmm. the strengths, the weaknesses, the opportunities, and threats. And the only weakness that came about was my arrogance towards the cycling community. <laughs> and thankfully, no one's ever said that in the cycling community. You know what I mean? I can see how it could be could come across to those who do this for a living, sure. who do, you know, set these challenges. And it's like, there's this 40-year-old bold guy, you know, injured from the military, who thinks he's going to, you know, do this. So I could see how it could be perceived. But actually, it was, it was well-received from That's the awesome. cycling community. But I, I, I got, um, as I said, from the cycling perspective, it was a good move. From a logistics perspective, we're having to swap the vehicles every border crossing, which mm-hmm. was slowing us down. So my wife, who was the campaign director, she ran the whole project she rang me when i was in ecuador we bought a four by four in an rv from mm-hmm. fort lauderdale it was going to get shipped to panama and then when i finish in cartagena i fly across to panama and that vehicle would take us all the way to alaska she told me the vehicles hadn't been loaded onto the container oh, no. you know, i'm in ecuador now about right. two weeks out and uh, so thankfully for me she had foresight to fly out with my pa and a couple of my mates and they drove the vehicles four thousand miles in eight days from Fort Lauderdale through Mexico all the way through uh, to Panama City. Nice. So I, where, where I'm sort of going with that is it's a bit like with our special forces. For every operator to jump out of plane or step off a helo, take seven other people behind the scenes. Yep. You know, as I've seen today at Black Rifle, there's so many people working behind the scenes. It's been part of that team. And that was no different with this challenge. People saw me on the bike. But if it wasn't for that team behind me, you know, it wouldn't have been as successful as it was. 100%. And yeah. it's, again, a lot of people, you know, they watch the movies and they see the operator doing the things. But yeah. It's the support staff. I mean, yeah. everything from, you know, logistics to supply to shit, make sure I'm getting paid and my yeah. family's taken care of and medical and all that other shit. It's, all that. Yeah, it's from the cleaner who amount. comes in the morning to the cleaner who shuts the door at night. Yeah. Everyone is part of that team. And, and that was no different with this. And so I got into... North America on day 17, and I'm 14 days ahead now, and I'm mm-hmm. like, perfect. The record was, you said, 117. 117, okay. yeah, and I'm like, I'm 14 days ahead, you know, this, and I don't know whether getting into America, I don't know what it was, it's almost like getting to the war RV. Yeah. It's like, whew, huge weight off. I don't know whether it's because the culinary options were better, people spoke the language, mm-hmm. or because the previous record holders, all their issues were in Latin and Latin behind mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. 
But I get a week in, you know, I'm 14 days ahead. I Sorry, I get an hour in and I get five missed calls off my wife. And my wife, like I said, is very good at keeping all those distractions away from me. So my initial concern is that there's something wrong with our children. Right. So Terrifying. I get off my phone and I get off the bike and I ring her and is everything okay? She goes, yeah. She goes, what do you wear to a royal wedding? I said, sorry? She goes, what would you wear to a royal wedding? I said, she goes, oh, we've been invited to Harry and Meghan's wedding. I said, oh, that's nice. Yeah, she goes, nice. no, you don't understand. They said, for you to be to get back you need to be finished by day 102 so going into the phone call i was 14 <laughs> days ahead of the will record right. 10 minutes later i'm now a day behind oh, so shit. everything i'd done up until now not that it wasn't worth it it was almost like no the objective's now moved mm -hmm. you've now got a new target so uh, it was mixed emotions as i was cycling off on that that's a big mind game you it know, is just, a mind game. Yeah. yeah it is a mind game and uh, i think if i'd known about that from the start you know, I may have not have taken the rest days I did. I may have just pushed myself too much. But mm -hmm. thankfully for me, it was in a situation that I could act and I was in a good position to act on it. But I get to Lubbock the next day, strong winds, tornadoes, 60 mile an hour winds. So I'm now stranded for another 24 hours. I'm two hours behind. Awful. So there's, a, there's an app called Windy TV on your mm -hmm. phone. It gives you the strength and directions of the winds like every hour for the next two weeks. About 95% accurate. So I just put pen to paper and made another plan. So I had to cycle 340 miles in the next 36 hours to miss the next weather window. Gotcha. And um, I just played chess with Mother Nature. The winds were, at, as we know, when you're in the desert, winds subside at night. And that was the best time for me to cycle. So I had 17 days planned from North America. I cycled it in 11 and a half days. Wow. Majority of that done in the evening. You know, but also use it to my advantage. Got to Cheyenne in Wyoming picked up a 50 mile an hour tailwind and cycled 270 miles in 11 hours. That's, that's so, nice. yeah, so I was sort of like using the technology that I had um, and sort of, again, just changing the plan as we went along. And I get to a town called Whitehorse, mm -hmm. it's about yeah. a week outside of the finish. And I'm in McDonald's just eating as much as I could. <laughs> you know, don't judge me, because I was eating. was calories <laughs> in, man. You're calories burning in. I was, all day. I was burning nine to 12,000 calories a day, and your body could only consume 7,000 through food. What, what was your average time on the bike per 24-hour period or so per it, day? Yeah, so it changed. I changed the way I cycled. In, in South America, because of security situations, it was from first light to last light. Mm -hmm. So that was my, my time window. But for me, I wasn't an endurance cyclist. You know, you know, when you look at a challenge like this, you know, it's how do you manage it bite size? You know, selection for me is six, our selection six months long. Day mm -hmm. one, I'm not looking at day six when I get my berry and bell. I'm looking at what do I need to do today to get to tomorrow morning. Right. And, and that's what I did with this challenge. I broke it into countries, days, and into four stages. So I would just cycle as fast as I could for two and a half hours, get off the bike, and I was disciplined in my times. It was 30 minutes, food and water, and then I was off again. I wasn't you know, having a selfie with a llama or you know, chatting with a documentary team or doing anything else. Right. And I would just look at the next stage. And so South America was pretty much that. It was four two, two and a half hour stages. When I got to North America, because the security situation was a lot better, mm -hmm. I could cycle at night. And so, yeah, so I, I did the majority of my cycling. I was literally, and we had the RV that I could crash in. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it, was a, it was a totally different um, way of cycling. It was just when I could for as long as I could, and then, you know, use the winds to your advantage. And strangely enough, you know, we talk about the security situation. It was actually Colorado Springs that one of the vehicles got broken into. So really? we'd gone through Colombia, Mexico, all these places. It was actually Colorado Springs, which I sort of joke about. Where in about. the Springs? I used to live there. Did you? Yeah, yeah. we were just south. Is it Puebla? 
Yeah. Yeah, it's in and around there, I think it was, yeah. Oh, yeah that's not a good place. Don't no good stop pl- in Pueblo. <laughs> Don't stop in Pueblo. <laughs> I lived outside of Pueblo oh, really? for a little while. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They, well, they've got uh, uh, NS-13 and gangs and all kinds oh, really? of weird stuff that goes uh, We weren't away. No, we, <laughs> so yeah, the vehicle got broken into when we are in the hotel. But, yeah, I get to Whitehorse, and I'm like, right, we'll record secure. You know, I'm, I'm well ahead of target mm-hmm. now. And then... A friend of mine messaged me, and as a professional cyclist, sponsored by Red Bull, all the brands, you know, he's come out and said that he's going to cycle. He's got three other wheel records, 26-year-old, you know, like proper cyclist. Yeah. And he's come out and said that he's going to do this in August and be the first person to do under 100 days. So I was like, oh, you know. He so moved the target again. He moved the target man. again, yeah. So I probably, I could have just carried on at the pace I wanted, but I wasn't comfortable. I just wanted to, like, push as much as I could. So I had to cycle for 22 hours in the last... 30 hours in minus 18. You know, my family had just landed in Prudhoe Bay now as well. And uh, yeah, I came in in 99 days, 12 hours and 56 minutes. So Fucking smashed Smashed it. it. Yeah, it wasn't the original plan. Like if I'd known about the wedding, if I'd known about this guy, Michael, you know, I may have pushed myself too hard. But thankfully for me, I was in a position that I could, I could act on it. Mm-hmm. But I talk about having a plan. It's good to have a plan. You know, the success of this, though, was more that sort of SF mentality, you know, we'll get dropped into places as you know, and it's like, there may not be any infrastructure, but this is your mission, this right. is your objective. And, and that was the same with this, I had a start point and then an objective, but the situation kept changing on the ground and I just had to react to that situation. Well, I think that's, you know, from our backgrounds and whatnot, I think that we're pretty good at that. Very good, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, I, I still need to get it accomplished. I just need to go with the flow, figure it out, come up yeah. with a creative way. Like, yeah. to look at the wind patterns and whatnot, it resonates with me a little bit. This is not hard. I was riding a motorcycle, an adventure bike, yeah. on the Continental Divide, nice. and storm's coming. You know? yeah. So, look at the storm, how can we kind of stay away from it so that we can continue our forward progress, it, yeah. you know, and get to where we need to be at the right time. Yeah, no, I think, and, and yeah, use the tools around you, use your previous experience. You know, mm-hmm. for me, I, I, I don't mean you can be experienced without experiences. You know, I've probably taken something from each chapter in my life and it, it was utilized on that bite rider yeah, at, at some point. Yeah, it's a of all of it. What was, the, what was the darkest headspace that you got in during that? What was the biggest struggle? Um, I was very fortunate because I think the first week I had a, a week of crosswinds. You know, living in Scotland is a bit like Aberdeen's like Chicago. You know, I'm used to winds, but I'd never experienced winds like that. So it was really hard to hit my target for the day. But I think I was 39 miles behind target by the end of the first week. But my my I was still a week ahead of the world record. Right. And so from then on, the winds had subsided. I was always on the on the plus. I was now going. Um, hitting beyond what I needed to. So really from a, a, I wasn't really in a dark place because I see people doing challenges and it's like, well, I'm 10 miles behind today. I'll catch it up tomorrow. Mm. And you're like, well, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I mean, you have another bad day and you're 20, 30 miles behind. Yeah, tomorrow's not guaranteed. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. So I always made sure and always tell people, make sure you, you stay on that bike or in that canoe or whatever you're doing and be where you're supposed to be at the end of the day because you're, your headspace, you're in a better headspace when you go to sleep because right. you know, right, I'm on point or where I should be. So I was very lucky I didn't get into any really dark uh, spaces. My, my manager, uh, no, so we raised £70,000 at an event in UK and we were already planning the welcome back party before I'd even set off. Yeah. Just imagine the pressure. Well, you have to. Yeah, you have yeah, to, yeah. yeah. We have to sort of look beyond and... She would, um, uh, Amanda name was, she was the event organizer. And she said, well, what is the contingency? And Alana, my wife, was like, well, we go to Dean's funeral. 
and she and I never used to answer yeah and I never used to answer and it, and I I didn't and when I came back and you know we smashed the world record you know um we raised 930,000 pounds like one at the time it was That's 1.3 million dollars it's probably 930,000 dollars at the moment yeah. with the exchange rate so that was more impressive in itself but when I came back I said to her I said look if if I knew that there was a, a plan B or there was a contingency. When things get hard, you naturally steer towards that alternative option. Mm-hmm. So for me, there was no alternative option than finishing it. Yeah, this, and is, this is no different than, uh, you know, talking to young people that want to do uh, a selection process. Yeah. Or, or maybe it's PJ where there's water work. Yeah. And I go, you never come up for air because the first time you pop, there's now that quit or that avenue to yeah. air that you can't allow yourself mentally to have. Exactly. To have yeah. a plan B, you have to not have a plan b yeah there shouldn't be a plan b in your plan yeah yeah so and that that was the that was the 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 same as this but um going back to the sort of the the headspace i'd visited all the charities so there's 11 charities that would be benefiting from this Mm -hmm. and one of them was a charity called place to be and it meant every the hundred thousand pounds they would get enabled fourteen thousand children to go speak to um specialists at school and so for Amazing. me, I was that. Well, every mile that I'm on this bike enables another child to do that. So I was also tricking my mind as well. And that's just one charity of, of eleven. Oh, wow. So um, you know, so for me it was like. You know, but actually, the, the documentary team, they, they were like, this guy's showing no emotion, very stoic, you know, very sort of military operation. And he said, you show no fear. And I said, look, everyone has fear. Um, and he said, well, what's your fear? And I said, well, my fear is I've told the world that the ethos of the UK Special Forces is the unrelenting pursuit of excellence. And I said, yeah. I said, so how does this look if I don't complete this challenge to the SF community? So actually, it was a self-induced pressure. I wasn't pressured by my sponsors. I wasn't pressured by the charities. They were very much, you know, relaxed. You you go do what you need to do. Mm -hmm. For me, it was like, could I go back to a bar in Hereford or back to a bar in Poole and hold my head up high and say that I'd given it my 100%? And so that's what it was. It wasn't... Uh, a third party influence it was my own self-induced pressure so that was my as driving always, force as it always is right? <laughs> exactly I, I, my own worst enemy you don't need to critique me i already know the, the, you're, you're, the guys are the biggest critics oh, the guys 100%. and the girls are the biggest critics so well, it's super inspirational too. yeah you know i think it's just a phenomenal thing that you got accomplished and yeah. i'm assuming that was kind of your first public celebrity as you've become uh, yeah and that's what i said and then i I never looked beyond the bike ride i did it so i wasn't smuggling people across borders and burying weapons in the desert i didn't see you know guest speaking tv opportunities books and things like that and so yeah your your head then pops up above the parapet and so we weren't ready we didn't have a website we didn't didn't do any social media and so it's like well you now have that profile you know first question was you know what next i'm Mm -hmm. like really i've just finished this and so so for me, I think whatever you need to do, you have to have a goal, or, or put, and that's what the thing with the military, you know, that identity crisis. Right. I'm not, I'm not going to say cycle fourteen thousand miles are ludicrous, but have some short-term goal or something to aim for or train for. So I'm real ambassador. I'm pushing that physical activity mm-hmm. helps your mental state. You know, that's Absolutely. the one I'm always, always pushing. You know. Um, the Royal Foundation I got introduced to, they said, what is the message you're promoting with this challenge? And I said, well, physical activity. And they said, oh, no, you can't use that. This was back in 2016. I said, why? And they said, it's not been scientifically proven. I said, yeah, but I don't need a scientist to tell me that I feel good. So I ignored them anyway and sort of still try and bang that drum that, you know, if you're feeling down or, or you know, 
you know, my wife knows it with me. If I get grumpy, she tells me to go to the gym. Absolutely. You know, I know, I, I internally look in, I was like, yeah. right, I haven't trained today, so I need to need to do something. Um, so, yeah, I really I will try and keep promoting that. But, you know, the next one, people are like, what's next? So for me, I like to take a challenge or a sport that I've never done before mm-hmm. and find the biggest challenge. You know, I've, I've dipped my toe in the cycling world. I've enjoyed it. Um, so the next one is to kayak the River Nile, the world's longest river that's never been done before from source to sea. Originally, we were supposed to do it in 2020, mm-hmm. and then COVID obviously COVID, yeah. happened. Pause two years. Pause two years, yeah. and me and my family then moved over from the UK right in the middle of COVID, saw an opportunity while the world was paused, and sort of picked it up from here. And, and what I love about here in the U- US is, you know, is people, back in the UK, people are like, oh, no, it's not achievable, you can't do that. Whereas here, it's like, how can we help? You know, who can I introduce you to? So I, I just love that, that mindset, that go-get attitude. But also... When I was sort of pushing out to sponsors and some of the, the, the media out, outlets, they're like, unfortunately, we're in a society. It doesn't matter how many will records you've got or how many millions you've raised for charities. Like, how many Instagram followers you've got? I'm like, really? And it's, it's like... It's a commodity. It's a commodity, days. yeah. And it's fucking bizarre. It is so bizarre. Ways. So, yeah. so I, I found this out July last year and I said, you need to help raise your profile. So the plan the next two years is, is, is to do that. So we, we were doing some really good. I did, I did a big show in Australia called SAS Australia, where four SF instructors take a load of celebrities and just scream and shout at them. Yeah, yeah they great. love it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, and I turned that down for a few years, and I thought, well, now's the right time. You're a public figure. You're already above the parapet and and so now i'm, I'm filming a, a great factual series with one of the mainstream uh networks which comes out next summer uh, very excited just within my lane um, how much can we talk about yeah which we can't talk about unfortunately ah. but what it will do it will raise that profile exponentially but and then for me it's like well now we've got enough eyes mm-hmm. you know we can approach the sponsors we can approach the um the broadcasters but what it does it brings more eyes to it I and mean, then from a philanthropy big angle when we're fundraising we can raise more money and then give back you know gotta have those followers you gotta have them followers yeah it's it's a whole nother component yeah nowadays where you know in the past maybe i don't know how it worked for you but you know you're trying to get your sponsors on board you explain what it is it's a sales pitch it is yeah and now that sales pitch also has to be well what's our reach yeah. when we support you like yeah. how many followers do you have and everything it's, it's true, very yeah. interesting it's really interesting but you know for me i was my, my wife she's 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 got a book coming out, How to Ask for Money. You know, she got me 500,000 pound sponsorship for this as a, as a no one. Wow. She, she knew because it, it, was, it was about the right messaging, the right time. So in the UK, uh, Heads Together just launched on the London Marathon. So it was very much the topic of conversation with the corporate sector. So she, you know, it was, it was good timing, but it has to be the right message. Smart you know, lady. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so she, she'll, she'll work with that. But the, this was for mental health. The next one's about modern slavery, human trafficking, and climate change as well. So, yeah, You're I'm excited about it. all on. You're yeah, all, <laughs> exactly. all the big, uh, you know, topics uh, to need to be rectified. Yeah, right? need to be rectified as well, yeah. So, I mean, for me, Africa... In the secure industry, Africa is probably my favorite continent. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they don't have much money at all, but they're probably the most hospitable people. And, you know, they would give you everything that, that they had. And so really, with the Pan American Highway, the road is the road. You know, I mean, it was always going to be there. Mm-hmm. There's, yeah, there may be certain scenarios. With the Nile, is a different beast That's completely. Wild. Yeah, there's crocodiles, there's hippos, there's civil war in South Sudan. I, I'm going to be reliant a lot on the locals mm-hmm. to help me. Um, but the kayaking community have been really 
really um, excellent with this. You know, yeah. they've heard me before on a, a couple of other podcasts, and some of the big guys have reached out, the big white waters, and they're like, ah, where can we help? You yeah. know, we, we'll come with you. And so it's really cool when you see communities, like yeah. you said, like the cycling thing. You didn't mm. really meet any resistance. You got support, if anything, and encouragement. Yeah, so that's cool to hear that the kayaking community is uh, supporting it. Are you going to, well, number one, what's the current record? There isn't one. So this None. is yeah, so this is the difference oh, yeah. between this and the bike ride. No one's ever done it before. Oh, sure. There was a there was a lady, Sarah Davis, who paddled now, but when she went she couldn't do South Sudan, there was other areas that she couldn't do for security reasons. Mm-hmm. And so she's probably gonna come join me for the areas that she didn't do. But no one's oh, actually nice. done it from source to sea nonstop. Uh A so to B. Yeah. yeah. And you'll smash it. Yeah, oh, it was <laughs> did did you said his name is Mike, the twenty six year old that yes. challenged you? Yeah, yeah, he did. I met he he beat my world record. Oh, I did met it? yeah, I met him in um when I was cycling between Vienna and Prague for mm-hmm. a non-profit. And I walked into a um into a cycling shop because I I'd actually forgotten to bring bring any cycling shorts. Oh, yeah. And as I was in there this gentleman's like, "Oh, you're Dean Stott." And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "Oh, we sponsor Michael and he lives around the corner." Oh, so he came out, he came out, him and his fiance came out the next day and we went cycling on the from my first leg to Prague. And he said, although he beat my world record, he said, yeah, but you took my legacy. You were the first man to do it under 100 days. And so I was like, yeah, I'll probably, I'll probably take that. I think, I think there's been three other people since that have done it under 100 days. So I obviously upset the cycling community because yeah. it all came out in force. Well, I think your, your, your approach on it was, seemed much different. Everyone else just did what the guy before him did. Yeah. And you changed it. You flipped it. You, know, you were very, yeah. very smart about it. He Stand he out. did go. He went he went the other way. He did the Alaska route. Mm-hmm. Um, he had one of those, you know, those huge like Red Bull buses with him and yeah. things like that. But what there was a comfort was to know, you know, records are there to be broken. You know, help the net. You know, I got helped by those before me. Use that information. Mm-hmm. He was following my my route because the the start point and finish point is the same, but you, you have to choose your route as right. well. And he was going to go slightly different. He said, actually, I followed your route to the point because you you had done it perfect you know I was like, okay so that was a that was a comfort but for me it's like you know I've enjoyed cycling I've dipped my toe in and you know, I'll now go upset Gotta the kayaking community else. but he for him that's his his job and he's really struggling to find what can he do next hmm. and so I, I don't have that that worry it's like well I'll just go grab a grab an oar and a kayak and try and stay alive invite him along on the uh, kayak trip yeah good do but he um but he's um yeah, we've got a photo together, and he looks like I don't look like a cyclist, you know. No, I, you don't. No, no. <laughs> no, I, I, I think I started weighing 200 pounds. I think uh, your arms have gotten bigger since the last time we met. Yeah, well, my wife didn't marry me because I looked like Chris Froome, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> First, I, could I finished weight, I lost 12 kilos. I lost about 25 pounds. That's a lot. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was a lot. But going into it, it was like a polar expedition. I was losing weight from the day that I started to the day I finished. So I. I just couldn't take on an, enough food. Yeah, it's almost um, impossible. At that rate, you know, yeah. the consumption. Well, like you said, you can only absorb, what is it, 7,000 calories? About 7,000, I reckon, through, through solids. The rest comes through through liquids. Yep. You know, that's that's where you get the rest. But you, you still was just, you know, when you throw food poison in there and you're sweating, and, you know, there's so many so many factors in there. So it's hard to, to stay on. So that's wild. at least with the kayak, and hopefully I'll maintain some weight. Yeah, yeah. Just don't get eaten. Okay, yeah. so we can move on to the next challenge. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, well, I've got a gentleman who's going to come with me. Everyone I spoke to said you must speak to this guy, Pete, hmm. uh, Pete Meredith. So, he his friend he witnessed his friend get eaten by a crocodile when they were kayaking together, and he knows the Nile 
inside out. And I'm like to him, what's, what's the plan then? And he said, I'll, I'll be that close in the safety boat. Don't yeah. you worry. But Good. That makes me feel better. I want you to come <laughs> on and tell me how yeah. you smashed that. And it was we great. will, yeah. And all the stories that go along with mm. it. Let's talk about the book. Yes. Yeah. So obviously when I, when I, when I finished the bike ride, um, you know, I, I wrote the book Relentless. It's almost three books in one. It's my, my childhood in the military mm-hmm. up until the selection on special forces. I don't really go into any special forces stories, but, you sure. know, because I'm, I'm, I, I can't do that. But, but then there's so many private security s- stories. I actually did more sensitive jobs as a private security operator than I did when I was in the special forces, probably because I wasn't under so much uh, rules of engagement, not mm-hmm. rules of engagement, but representing your country and mm-hmm. things like that. And we, you have more freedom and flexibility. So the second part of the book is is all about them, uh, about some of those stories, some that we've touched on and then some other great ones in there. And then how that then led into into the bike rides. It's probably about three books yeah, right. in, in one. Couple, um, couple phases there. Yeah. I can't imagine all the stories. That's <laughs> but, awesome. But we released the book in, in Europe and UK a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. It was a great book then. And um, when I moved to America, I told my publishers, I said, look, I'm, I'm going on some of these big podcasts. I did an interview with People magazine, which I think has got 75 million followers in the US. I said, it'd be good to get some books here. Yeah. And they just weren't interested because so many couple of years had passed. And it was like, so the book got to number one on Kindle on the back end of one of the podcasts. So my wife being my wife, as I said, the entrepreneur, she got in touch and she's like, well, if you haven't released it in the US, we will buy the rights. So my wife bought the rights from the publishers. Smart. And um, so we own the rights for US and Canada. We've Americanized the book, you know, so we've got like sort of Admiral McRaven, Jocko Willink, Bear Grylls, names that people Americans know. Because the UK one, we had like Serrano Fines, an amazing explorer. Uh, famous ex-SAS officer, but here in the U.S. The name recognition. Y- yeah, you, w- yeah. You, wouldn't, you wouldn't link it. But we also changed the cover, you know. Clearly, we have <laughs> a belt fed. A belt fed. <laughs> Just speaks America. Yeah, that wouldn't, that wouldn't, that wouldn't sell a, a copy in the U.K. But it was also, the one in the U.K. was a dark face and a couple of frogmen coming out of the water, which is very typical of a U.K. UK book, whereas America is about light and hope. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, well, let's change the book cover. So we changed the book cover, you know, 511 came in. They've sort of helped me with that. But also we sort of lost, we lost a a community with the first book because it looked like a military book. Mm -hmm. It did say from SPS to world record breaker, but but what was the world record in? There was nothing there. So on the front of this one, we've got sort of watermarked in there, a cyclist, because the cycling community is huge. And so, it's yeah, they, they see that, and they definitely see that, but that's a military book. But they, might, they may get a glimpse of the cyclist. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, so we re- re- the book released 28th of November, and, nice. um, yeah, it's going to be... And we've, we've, we've added a little bit more in there, which is in, in the original book as well, so people get a little bit more in there. Yeah, so yeah. maybe everybody that bought the first one, they got to tune in for the second Yeah, they got to tune in for the second, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, awesome. Exactly. Where do people find you? Where are you on IG... Yeah, I'm on Instagram, Dean Stott, Instagram, Facebook, um, and um, you know www.deanstott.com is is the website. Nice. You can buy the book on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, most places where you'll be able to buy books in the U.S. That's fantastic. All right, for those listening, go out, check out the book after the 28th of November. 28th of November, yeah. I appreciate you for coming and sharing this. It's a truly inspiring story, man, and that you're continuing to challenge yourself and find new challenges in different facets and different disciplines is awesome, man. Brilliant. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you, man. No worries. Excellent.
That concludes today's training. Any questions? Woo! Drum titties, boy!